0: Another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your went. You can scream. Hi, folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world and the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, Or even if they don't, dictate it, as almost always, during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas, from my personal mobile studio. Today, I believe, is Monday, March the 16th, which means tomorrow will be St. Patrick's Day. So, happy St. Patrick's Day to everyone out there uh, for tomorrow that's going to be listening to the show a day after, like many of you do. Uh, Whether you're Irish or not, St. Patrick's Day is a cool holiday. I consider St. Patrick's Day one of the the true man holidays. On St. Patrick's Day, I don't have to put on a suit of clothes that I don't want to wear. I don't have to visit anybody. That I would prefer not to visit The primary means of celebration Is the imbibement of uh, beer And uh, snack foods Which are not good for me But taste wonderful And it is an excuse to eat them with abandon And uh, that's pretty much it There's religious roots to it of course And St. Patrick and all But uh, overall the way the holiday is celebrated Excellent man holiday Nothing at all Like, you know, the Christmas holiday. (laughs) And I'll leave it at that for now. I like Christmas too, folks. There's just a difference in uh, the celebration and uh, men sometimes having to do things they'd prefer not to do. Anyway, uh, I am back from northern Arkansas, um, north of Hot Springs, Arkansas, at the undisclosed exact location of the Spearco family remote bug-out location slash homestead. And uh, I was hoping to have just a pile of video to be working on last night when I got home. And uh, I ended up shooting two videos once we got back home. One on the first phase of making Bill Tong. We'll shoot phase two of that tonight and try to get that up for you. in The premium members area, the members support brigade. Uh, The reason we didn't shoot video in Arkansas. Uh, Those of you that think winter weather is gone because you live in the south, could be in for a surprise, I guess, because we were. We were in Arkansas, still pretty far in the south, and it's zone 7 for gardeners. And, you know, you're looking at a last frost date around April 1, and here we are mid-March, and should be pretty nice. The weather was, in the words of my wife, gross. And at least it was gross for uh, the concept of shooting video. Uh, We had rain, we had sleet, we had ice. We had two days where all the trees in the mountains were absolutely coated in ice. We didn't get a lot of ice accumulation on the road. It was mostly the trees, power lines, things like that. We didn't have a lot of power outages. We had no interruptions whatsoever. So we spent most of our time up there not really accomplishing a lot, which was probably good, because we've all been working so hard here uh, to try to take things up a notch. Uh, we probably needed to unplug for four or five days. That's pretty much what we did. We read books. We stood around. We watched a few movies on the DVD player. We watched the two or three uh, off-air channels that come in from the little uh, antenna that we point at, Little Rock. and and uh, we took walks with uh, our dog. We took our Siberian Husky Lakota with us. Uh, we took walks with him and the uh, vacation dogs, which you might have seen from pictures on the thing. So the bug out, the the, the, the five-day bug out turned out to be a five-day rest. And uh, like I said, it's probably good. So bad news, no video. Good news, two videos, which I will put up today sometime for member support brigade members. Um, one on, like I said, phase one of making Bill Tong. The other one, just a little quick video with me cutting some salad out of one of our windows boxes and giving you an idea of even if you live in an apartment or a small uh, garden home or something like that where you don't have much of a lawn, how much you can really produce from, you know, one 12-inch long window box. So those videos will be up. We're going to be shooting a lot more video this week. My wife's kind of getting into the swing of things with the video stuff, Uh, still working on her focusing in and out a little bit with uh, getting it smooth, but uh, she's uh, coming along fine with the editing as well. So we're going to start turning out more videos for you. Uh, and our, one of our videos we want to do this week is we're going to start doing a series. I'm going to do a series of videos uh, on how to better shoot uh, rifles and shotguns, and how to practice in your home when you can't get to the range. And we'll start the first one of those this week as well. So that's for member support brigade. Right now, member support brigade is closed. We let beta members in. I still haven't gotten the wall completely updated for the foundational members. All the spots are taken. I'm going to try to get that done this evening, and I plan on opening member. Support Brigade to all starting tomorrow. So if you want to join Member Support Brigade, which is $5 a month or $50 a year, it's up to you. Uh, we will have that done and we should be ready to start taking cash receipts uh, by the end of the week with the modifications of the software for that. So that's the house cleaning on that. Let's get into today's subject, uh, which is going to be gardening and survival gardening with the square foot method. Uh, at least that's going to be part of it. Uh, I spent a lot of this vacation reading the uh, the book, "The All New Square Foot Garden" uh, by Mel Bartholomew i have been familiar with square foot gardening and uh, kind of like the concept to a degree but it, to me it had something missing something lacking a lot of the things that mel said i didn't have to worry about anymore You just changed the form that i had to worry about as far as inner planting, i was already doing that as far as planting plants closer together instead of big long giant rows using wide raised beds and you know staggering things and doing different things like that i was already doing that so i i looked at what Mel did and said, that's cool, the grid's cool, uh, but, you know, is it really necessary? So uh, about a week ago, I was planning one of my new 4x8 beds, and I just, instead of, you know, worrying about all the little procedures and mixing stuff like that, I just went and used some uh, jute twine and made a, a grid so that I had uh, a complete square uh, system, and I planned it. And I'll tell you what, it was really cool planning that way. And it started to give me an understanding of why somebody might want to take this approach. And uh, to be fair to Mel, I should have did what he said when I read his first book, which is, just try one. Just put together one 4 by 4 bed, give it a try and see what you think. So after doing that, while I was up there, I went out and I bought the all-new square foot garden book, read the whole thing cover to cover while we were up there. And uh, the new methodology, which I'll talk about today a bit, seems to be what might really be the perfect survival garden for a variety of reasons that I'll give you. That said, while we're on this subject, I got a plethora of emails over the weekend. In fact, when I got home, my inbox had 816 emails in it, half of which were completely useless and was nonsense. Uh, of course, so I had to weed through 400 of those to get to the 400 that needed to actually be looked at. Of those 400, there's probably 150 that I really needed to read. So I spent a lot of time yesterday doing that, and out of those 150, there was at least five or six that were talking about a new bill in the House of Representatives that affects agriculture. And the big hoopla and the big uproar is that it might affect your home garden. Now, having read the excerpts from the bill, I can see how it's possible that through misinterpretation, it may be applied to home gardens at some point in the future. I don't think that's the intent of the bill. That's still a danger. Uh, and again, this bill is HR 875. I'm going to give you just a little bit about it. And if you're going to make calls to your congressional clown this week, since this bill's not in the Senate yet, uh, the only person you can really call about this is your congressman. You may want to give your congressman a call on this thing and tell him what you think of it. I won't tell you what to think. I'll just tell you what it says. I'll tell you what I think it means, and then you decide what you think, because uh, this is a, a show where people are, you know, encouraged to think for themselves, not be told by the host what to think. What this bill basically says is that there's a whole plethora of paperwork and planning and bureaucracy and bullshit and expense, and I won't get into the specifics, but it's things like having a, a plan for what happens if your uh, chemical fertilizers are spilled. And, uh, well, what if you're an organic gardener that doesn't use chemical fertilizers? fertilizers maybe you don't need a plan but according to this bill you need a plan anyway and it's it's very broad in that it says it applies to any farm ranch orchard vineyard or operation uh engaged in keeping captive animals now if you if you read it like that you would say well if you grow it they own it they regulate it so it would apply to your home garden Yes, it could be taken that far. I think what we would need to do is get a good old-fashioned legal dictionary that, that cites the legal definitions of terms used in uh, writing U.S. congressional bills and find out what farm, ranch, uh, orchard, vineyard, etc., uh, actually mean in their language, how they're interpreted. Is a farm or an orchard simply a place where plants are grown, or does it have to be an operation for a profit? So is this thing really a threat to your home? Garden. I don't know. My gut instinct is not yet. The, the danger is it could mutate into something that would be in the future. As uh, new sweeping controls and powers are given to a uh, single federal agency, there's the big one. That's what's that's what is in this. A lot of authority that's divided up among the states. And a lot of authority that's divided up against multiple federal bureaucracies, which I like things divided up against multiple federal bureaucracies because it slows down their progress. When you pull it all under one roof, they get to move faster and screw us quicker. So this pulls a lot of the power that's formerly in the hands of the states uh, that may enable them to eventually do things like forced edicts uh, upon people uh, like NAIS, which I've talked about before, other things like that. And here's the big problem I have with this. There's no doubt that an operation like, let's say, the Dervais, this little uh, tenth of an acre backyard micro farm in uh, Southern California that sells salad, and, uh, salad components and fruits and vegetables to local restaurants and eateries would fall under the definition of a farm. I have no doubt about that. Because they're engaged in an operation for a profit. And that's who I think is really the target of this this H.R. 875 pile of crap. Now what I'll do is I'll post a link to the bill itself. I'll post a link to an article or two about it. You can read it, form your own opinion. Uh, But I recommend that if you are against this thing, that you take the action today to call your congressman before this thing gets any real momentum or steam behind it. And ignore the fact that AIG executives are going to get paid bonuses of uh, several hundred million dollars. Because we gave them hundreds of billions $180 $180 billion or something like that. The couple hundred million is a drop in that bucket. And the company is under contractual obligation to pay it. Do I like it? No. Do I think they should do it? No. Do I understand the legalities of why they have to do it? Yes. What do I think the solution is? I think it would have been to never give them the uh, $180 billion and buy them so that the United States people now own 80% of that company in the first place because now you and I are on the hook to pay those obligations that the company has. When you buy a company, you buy controlling interest in a company, you know, you buy their obligations, their debt. That's what we did. That's what we did when we bought AIG. Now we have to pay their bills. And uh, maybe we'll eke out some sort of a profit somewhere, but I highly doubt it. But understand that things like, again, as soon as you start hearing, oh, the greedy corporate executives are getting their hundreds of millions, or their millions, or whatever, or flying around in a jet, and all this hoopla and all this nonsense, it's to keep you from paying attention to things like H.R. 875 so that, you know, the the New World Order, and I, I use that term not in the conspiracy theorist uh, way, but I use that term in the open, wide open for everyone to see, look, the New World Order of socialism for the United States, which has been in motion for years and years and years. It's not about Barack Obama. He's just like, you know, the, the, the silly, happy socialist now. Um, but, you know, Bush advanced a lot of this crap. Clinton advanced a lot a lot of this crap, Bush senior advanced a lot of this crap. I hate to admit it, but even Reagan did some advancing of it. Carter advanced it, Ford advanced it, Nixon advanced it. I mean, you just keep going back, back, back. FDR made the biggest advances up till at least now. Um, but that stuff that's going on out there is actually what's going to affect your life long term. But instead, the media, the drive-by media, is, I'm not sure who calls them that. One of the big hosts calls them that. But the drive-by media wants you to pay attention to the little things that aren't really going to affect you. See, the $180 billion we gave AIG is already spent. It's gone. We're not getting it back. It's done. It's over. It's been given to the company by buying their stock. The company now takes the money and spends it as they see fit. That's how investing works. That's why I did a show when they called AIG a bailout. I said, it's not a bailout. It's a buyout. Now we own them. And now we get all the negativity of owning them. That's why I brought that show up. So, why do I bring AIG up in the middle of a garden show? Because it's important to understand how all these things interplay. And how something like H.R. 875, again, H.R. 875, uh, can be buried under a pile of crap that doesn't really matter, and slowly work its way through a body of government, and then we end up trying to shut it down when it's in its final stages. Now, this bill is heavily sponsored by lobbyists from Monsanto. Um, the uh, the congressman that sponsored it, it's a Democrat out of Connecticut, I don't remember his name, but he has close ties to a lobbyist for Monsanto, and uh, I've been telling you guys that this is a threat, and I for one believe that consolidating the ownership of food production and distribution into a few hands of a few powerful people is the most dangerous threat that we have that's man-made in existence today, because if you don't eat, you die. And it's not that these people plan on starving us, but by controlling the food supply, putting the little guy out of uh, business, and making sure that we have to eat what they give us, we're subject to their incompetence, their stupidity, and their malice. And it's something I don't want to be dependent on anything, especially incompetence and malice and stupidity, where these people are doing things like genetically altering seeds so that they will terminate themselves after a single season. Now, like I said, I don't think you're backyard garden is what the tar what is targeting HR eight seventy five, but I think it's the cause of the emergence of HR eight seven five. Here's why. Every time a small gardener starts to produce for himself, one in ten takes it a little further. One in ten of us, when we start building our backyard garden, realize how much we really can produce through completely organic means. And we start to look around in our communities and we go, you know what, there's a demand for organically produced produce, locally produced produce, and it's a growing demand. It's small, but it's it's solid and it's growing. And there's farmer's markets I can sell at. I don't even have to be at the farmer's market. I can go down there, find a guy that's already got a place at the farmer's market and say, hey, what, don't you sell the you think would sell well, and maybe it's a certain variety of pepper. I can grow that pepper, and I can take a couple bushels a week during the harvest down to this guy, run my own little micro farm, split the profit with him, make a little bit of money, and create a little bit of independence. And it's it, Or I can go find five restaurants that will buy my salad green mix on a daily basis, like their primary source of income is. And, and So one in ten, or one in twenty, somewhere in that range, are making that leap. And is that leap compound What Monsanto's realized is that it's one thing to make the giant, huge, 100-plus-acre farmer comply. It's easy to make him comply because his entire existence is dependent upon, you know, irrigation, uh, fertilization, all these different components, uh, seed, uh, all of these things are, are necessary for him to be successful. And he's growing high mass-produced crops, and because of that, he has to make sure he's at maximum output. Anything less than maximum output, he takes a loss for a year. He takes a loss for one or two years, he loses the farm. So getting that. that that type of person to comply the majority of them anyway is a relatively easy thing especially when they have this huge propaganda campaign and they go out and they talk to all these people and they say hey you know what we're here to help you look this seed grows faster hey check this out you can put this soybean in the ground you can spray it with Roundup it grows anyway and you don't have any weeds to worry about and to the farmer that's been trying to make a living for a long time dealing with these problems this looks like a solution he jumps on board now the guy with an A acre, or two acres, or five acres, or a half acre, or two, two, a quarter of an acre, that puts in a micro farm, he'll tell Monsanto to pound sand. His entire operation it can be run organically very easily uh, in actuality. If he has a source of irrigation and a source uh, multiple sources for materials to make compost or for compost itself, he can pretty much just run and operate with a few little livestock here and there to provide him some additional manure and supplementation and to help break down some of his composting materials. That kind of operation can produce tons, literally tons of food. For instance, was it's like 6,000 pounds of food they produce on a tenth of an acre. That's three tons, folks. Three tons. Now, what if you gave that family two acres of fertile farmland to work with? What could they produce then? And there's people out there that are using these methods on two acres that are producing that type of volume, you know, 20,000, 30,000 pounds worth of food, and they are making inroads. And every time a little one pops up, it gets harder and harder for these multinational conglomerates to squash them down. You want to squash down, uh, you know, the uh, the breadbasket of the United States and 10,000 farmers each sitting on a thousand acres of land. You have a very small group to work with. It sounds big, but it's not. But when you have 10,000 little operations spread out throughout the United States that are growing, and they are encouraging the people not only to buy from them, but whatever they're not buying from, them, they grow their own. And to continue this, this multiplication, what you end up with this multi-head Medusa that eventually they can't control it. And they know that's coming, so they're trying to shut down the small farm with this bill key to that uh, shutting down the uh, the small farmer is what the home gardener is doing. Because the home gardener is the genesis of this revolution. When Jules Dervais held his trowel up as a symbol of revolution and said the resistance fer- is fertile, he was right. When you start to have success in any revolution, it's only natural for the powers that be to come back and push back in the other direction. They don't like your success. They don't want you to be successful, because your success is their demise. Now, I'll never understand what makes people like the people that own and run a company like Monsanto, uh, or any company worth billions, tick. I'll never understand why people that have billions of dollars seem to think that they need more. I don't understand the psychology there. To me, most human beings have a point at which they go, I have enough. I don't need more. But there are people that are so driven to own and control society that they'll never Never stop. And once they get to a certain size, there's where the problems kick in because now any type of ethical practice, which, geez, Monsanto, uh, you know, but there's other big agricultural companies other than Monsanto here, folks. They're just the easiest ones to kick. But uh, ethical practices for that company, gee, you, you, you wonder if they even have any that a normal human being would look at and call ethical. So how does square foot gardening fit into this? Well, what you do when you're when you're having a revolution and you're being successful and the authority is starting to fight back is you grow the revolution. All right? you, don't, you don't change your tactic because they're fighting back. You expand what's working. And that's the biggest thing that destroys most revolutions. A revolution is happening, being it a bloody revolution with warfare or a bloodless revolution like a home gardening revolution. The powers that be don't like it push back, so people change direction and try to go around the blockage. That's not what you do. If you can dam up a giant wall of water if you want to... If if the water keeps building, eventually it comes over the top of the dam, it runs over the top of the dam, it washes the dam out, and it destroys the dam. That's how successful revolutions are run. So what we need to be doing now is encouraging more and more people to garden. And we garden with a survival gardening mindset that I talked about in the show last week on Thursday, the one that I did a couple days in advance for you. And that is productivity, uh, that is uh, sustainability, that is producing more than you need so that you can store for the future. That is all these different things. And I started thinking when I did that podcast, if I could build a perfect survival garden, how would I describe it as simplistically as possible? Number one, it would have to be absolutely sustainable. It would have to be the most sustainable garden that you could come up with. You would need to have an ability to, to, to need each season as little new material as possible. It would have to be highly efficient from a watering standpoint. You would have to be able to to use as minimal amount of water as you could for it to grow. It would have to be easy to construct and easy to quickly expand. It would have to use companion planting to handle a lot of the situations where uh, insecticides and other uh, chemical, uh, even organic chemical controls, may no longer be available. Neem is a great organic insecticide safe, doesn't really harm most beneficial insects. It's wonderful, but if all the stores are closed, you can't get any. So it would have to incorporate using companion planting. And it would have to be good for seed savers. All right, it would have to be a good way to uh, create cross-pollinization of like plantings for seed saving. It would have to be something that would be 100% uh sustainable through an organic process. It would have to have a limited amount of time and maintenance because if you're in a true survival situation, you may not have time to sit around and garden every day. You may have other things to worry about. And when I then went and read the new square foot garden uh, by Mel Bartholomew, I went, I don't think Mel maybe would ever call himself a survivalist, but he's created the closest thing to the perfect survival garden I've ever seen. Let me give you a real brief description of what, hold on, got a jerk, got a jerk to deal with. Oh, man, getting on this tollway, folks, it's just, it's painful. It's painful the way people treat you when you're merging onto a freaking highway. You know what? The merge lane runs out, jackass. And now, look, he's getting off the next exit. He just couldn't stand to have me in front of him uh, for one freaking exit. What an ass. Anyway, I think Mel's created the perfect sustainable garden. Now, I read in this book that he's doing a lot of work internationally, and this is what's really sold me on the concept. Um... In these international areas uh, where you can't get two of the three components of what he calls Mel's Mix, which is vermiculite, peat moss, and compost, they're building these gardens with 100% compost, and they're having the same amazing results. And I actually think it's probably uh, just as good, if not a better way. It's just that vermiculite and peat moss cost less than compost if you're buying compost and if you're making compost as a time frame. Uh, So if you were to start out here domestically building your square foot garden with Mel's Mix with those three components and then we had a shit hit the fan scenario and you needed to keep expanding your production and you no longer had the ability to go out and buy vermiculite and peat moss down at a Home Depot, a Lowe's, or a Garden Center, well, you would still be able to continue the process. So that made it sustainable today and it made it sustainable in a post shit hit the fan scenario. So what are the components of this new square foot the gardening uh, the first one is it's a it's a fairly shallow bed Uh, The beds are six inches deep for most vegetables. If you want carrots or potatoes, you can build higher beds. Or you can simply take one square foot and extend it an extra six or eight inches up, uh, building, let's say, like a plywood enclosure to grow potatoes with and adding it to that one square. So I thought that was really freaking cool. And as long as it works, and with a million people doing it, it must work or you couldn't say it, uh, six inches is a lot less material to bring in. Now, I'm probably going to still be build my beds 8-10 to ten inches high mainly because I don't like to fill my beds to the top. So even if I'm going to do 6 inches of soil then I'm probably going to have a, an 8-inch bed that I'll end up filling 7 inches. Uh, but I'm going to give his mix a try. The other thing he does that I'm not completely sold on is he actually puts a weed blocker in the bottom of the bed and just doesn't even worry about the grass below. I guess you dig a little bit if you need to uh, to level the ground. Uh, but otherwise you just simply sit, sit this, this, this raised bed on the surface and don't worry about what's underneath it. And the reason you put the weed blocker down is to kill all the grass and everything and all the weeds so it doesn't grow up and through. And since you mix your own filler and you're basically making a giant container garden, you don't have any weed seeds in there because you're using compost, you're using peat moss, you're using vermiculite. So there's very few weeds you're ever going to have to contend with. There are only going to be seeds that land in there. Since it's loose and friable, you can easily pull them out. Again, great component for a survival garden. My problem is it's going to be hard for earthworms and other beneficial organisms to get through through that weed blocker. So, when I do my next raised bed, which will hopefully be video in most of it, I'm going to fill it with Mel's Mix. I'm going to go get some vermiculite and some peat moss, mix it in with uh, with uh, the uh, compost pile that I have, and uh, see how it compares to the one that I did with Jack's Mix, which I gave out a couple weeks ago. And uh, both of them being gardened in a square foot method to see if there's any difference in the way that they produce and respond, and how easy they are to maintain. Um, but the reason for that newspaper is, eventually, it'll rot and decompose and the stuff that's down there will be completely dead by then but worms and the like can crawl up through there and I just don't want a garden without worms I don't think that's I just don't think that's cool folks that's that's what it really comes down to I want worms in my garden now the other thing about this new method is you never fertilize now the, the reality is he says you never fertilize because you never add something specifically called fertilizer to the bed but what you do is every time you replant a square you add a a trowel or two full of uh, compost to mix it in. Well, your compost is your fertilizer. It provides all the fertilization you need as long as you use a blended compost mix. Now, if you're making your own compost, no problem. If you're buying compost, Mel advises, and I agree, that you buy four or five different brands or more of compost. Because the problem is, like, a company that, let's say, uh, that processes soybeans. would take all the pods and everything and they've used a huge industrial composting process to compost all uh, the uh, the soybean holes and, and what have you. Well, another company that processes buckwheat would maybe compost the buckwheat holes. And another company that uh, let's say uh, cleans seaweed out of farm ponds might compost the the the, the, uh, the the vegetation out of the farm ponds. Now, the problem is all of these things are one-dimensional as a form of compost. Very high in certain nutrients, very low in others. So the only way to get a good cross-spectrum is to use a variety of sources if you're purchasing your compost. Or if you're, you know, I like I went up with Garmin to the Mesquite facility and got compost from them, and they're bringing in stuff from all over the city. Hedge trippings, Christmas trees, cow manure, you name it, so that's a good blended mix. So if you can find a source where it's obviously already blended, that's another way uh, to get a good blended mix of compost. But you've got to have a blended mix. Here's the formula for a square foot garden. A six inch deep, uh, completely weed block locked-off facility. If you want to do this on a patio, you could do it with plywood on the bottom and some holes drilled in it for drainage. All right, So it doesn't have to be on the ground. You fill it with a mix of one-third vermiculite, one third peat moss, one third blended compost. You mix that up, you add it to your bed, you put a grid on it. Each grid square is one square foot. I'll put a link to Mel's website. You can go look at some examples. It's not a real complicated thing. It's actually very, very simple. But there's certain things that naturally occur that, again, I think make this maybe the perfect survival guard. One, you need to be rotating your crops to stay sustainable. You don't plant beans in the same place every year. They take out specific nutrients, they put back up others, eventually they build up diseases and pests for that specific crop, and they come in there and they cause damage, and you don't get good results anymore. So beans one time, corn the next time, cotton the next time, you know, in big agriculture, in your small farm, beans one time, carrots the next time, onions the next time, garlic the next time, back to beans, right? You keep rotating things, and that's fairly complex. In a square foot garden, since you're only planting one square foot at a time, when your beans are done, you're probably naturally not going to plant more beans. If you wanted successions, you'd probably probably already planted some more beans in another square. So now you're going to come in there and plant something like, you know, I don't know, amaranth, a couple of stalks of amaranth or orach or a good lettuce for the winter, I mean for the summer because you've been through your first crop or maybe you come in there with a pepper plant to go late into the fall. So you're going to naturally rotate and you're going to naturally refertilize. The big thing is the time savings because it's such a simple process once it's set up. Um, you don't have to continuously labor over your garden. So, again, you keep a high productivity with a low amount of input. So, again, I think this is something we in the survivalist-minded self-sufficiency community really need to look at. And apparently, Mel has taken this little concept all over the world to do just that, to go into impoverished nations and teach people how for no cost to set up their own little square-foot gardens. Because they're using salvaged wood. They're getting, con- you know, he says he goes to the countries where people go, we don't have anything to compost. We're poor. We eat everything. He says, really? Let's go around and you start going to shops and whatnot, look for something to throw away. And you find tons of material for free to compost. Uh, so, if it's working in places where people already need it for survival, bringing it here where we have so much abundance and starting now with it, we can create a lot of sustainability uh, for ourselves. He also in the book talks a great deal about vertical growing. And I think vertical growing is something we all need to look at doing with our gardens. It's far more efficient. I, I don't know where Bell got the idea. I think that maybe he's the first person that figured out to grow a tomato vertically because I was cutting saplings for tomato stakes when I was uh, eight years old for my grandfather. And uh, I, I've been staking my tomatoes vertically forever. But we also then turned around, and right next to the tomato bed, we grew cucumbers straight out across the ground, and I never even thought that he could trellis a cucumber. Uh, we grew bush beans instead of pole beans, so we got a brie for harvest. We, you know, there was all these things that we we did that my grandfather taught me that weren't wrong. There were just better ways, more efficient ways. So one of the things I'm going to experiment with this year as a compliment to square foot gardening is, as you guys know, I've bought all these great big um, flower pots I got for 5 bucks a piece at Home Depot. I'm going to set up three or four of them along my fence and trellis up my fence and up and across my fence with some different uh, winter squashes, uh, and things like that, cucumbers and different, and some melons, and p- do some companion planting, and see what can you do with a combination of square foot gardening and you know container gardening and traditional flower pots using a trellising method, and see how much production we can get that way. So this is going to be a cool year, and again, I'll be videoing a lot of this for the member support folks uh, and the member support brigade, and I'll be posting pictures and stuff to the forum as well. It's not like I'm not going to let you see it if you're if you're not in a supporting members brigade, but I've just made a decision that video for, you know, the people that, that that support the show because it's a lot of work to do this show every day, folks. It's a ton of work. You, you really can't imagine how much research and effort goes into doing just one show and I turn them out every day. So that's the reasoning behind that. Uh, but with that, I think I'm going to go ahead and wrap up. I, I cannot recommend highly enough that maybe you purchase a copy of Mel Bartholomew's book and, and, and don't make the mistake I did and buy the old one. Just go ahead and buy the new version. It's, uh, it's, it's a very enlightening book and take a look at his website and what he's doing and see if you know, kind of the square foot method fits in for you. And I think the biggest benefit that I want to close with is how much companion planting gets done naturally. I did entire shows on, you know, pairing the proper plantings and herbs and things like that and flowers together. Well, if you do square foot gardening and, and throw in maybe one square with some marigolds and one square with some uh in that four foot square, you're going to have all this different companion planting, maybe a square of onions. And by the time you throw in maybe some basil and then you put all your other crops in it, you're going to actually eat as salad vegetables, what you end up with is a garden that's very resistant to pests and disease in the first place before you have to worry about anything else. And that's huge for a sustainable, survivalist-minded garden. To have a garden that's highly, highly productive uh, and highly resistant to the things that would do harm to it around it uh, is a huge, huge benefit. So check that out. This has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't matter, cause it all gets spent.